Hey all, Michael Saramella here, and welcome back to the STAB Podcast channel. Today you're going to listen to something a little different from our typical weekly news segment on The Drop. Every Thursday over the next six weeks, we're going to publish a long-form interview-style podcast from different surfing regions to support our new No Contest series, which is produced in conjunction with Red Bull and available to watch for free on Red Bull TV. Ashton Goggins will lead these discussions with surfers and tastemakers from around the globe, including places like Fiji, Italy, Costa Rica, and beyond. For our Stab Podcast regulars, do not fret. We'll still be publishing our normal episodes of The Drop every Friday to discuss weekly surf news and competition with Buck, Stace, and myself. But for now, it's over to Ashton. Enjoy. For a week straight, the vibes were really good. Getting to understand Vietz's relationship with Fiji and his like connection to this place and sharing some of his knowledge and showing me the respect that he has for the place and, and how meaningful it is to him and like sharing the lineup in some like very intimidating ways was um, kind of a cocktail for an extremely memorable trip. Maybe one of the greatest swells and just surf frothing en- enjoyable trips I've, I've probably had. Hello, and welcome back to the No Contest Off Tour podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to the new Stab and Red Bull Media House series. We give you an expanded look at the places and characters that make up each episode. I'm Tyler Brewer from the Swell Season Surf Podcast, and we are again joined here with director and show host of No Contest Off Tour, Ashton Goggins. Ashton where are we heading for this episode? We're headed to Neverland, to Fiji, to Cloudbreak, oh, Tavarua. Fiji. Oh, dream. That is my dream to go there. And you got to go there. <laughs> yeah, this was my first trip to Fiji. And it's always been sort of the top of the list as far as like fantasy surf trips. And it lived up to every bit of its expectation. That's crazy. So, like, first, like, it's a long trip to get there. How do you get to Fiji? Like, from the uh, U.S., what's what's the route that you got to take? Fiji now is surprisingly easier to get to than you might imagine. And I was baffled at how quick you could actually be in the water at Cloudbreak. For Australians, it's like a four-hour flight. And they're almost in the same time zone. And for me, flying from L.A., there's direct flights either from Los Angeles or from Honolulu that range from, I think, about six hours to about 10 hours. And from Nadi International, you can get on a boat and be in the water at cloud break in about an hour and a half. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so it definitely gave me a new appreciation for the whole, like, swell strike cloud break sort of surfer. I think there's, like, a certain type of surfer that has developed over the last, say, 10 years who they always have their eye on that zone. And now I completely understand why. <laughs> so how did it come about for this this episode? Was this like planned out in advance or was this more of a strike mission type of thing? We knew we wanted to do Fiji the whole season. And we had been sort of loosely planning a trip with Julian as we were in production for the other shoots. And at for this episode, we had just finished shooting in Europe. And we're planning on going to Brazil and this 
purple blob popped up and Tavita Nukilau, who's an Australian born Fijian, uh, his dad's from one of the islands in the south and called Kunda- uh, Kundavu. And Tavita hit us up and was like, hey, it looks like there's going to be a moment where it could be like real deal outer reef cloud break, which was not what I had in mind. <laughs> I was, you know, because I, I think that people have this conception of cloud break of being that wave, you know, of being a monster, you know, being this fucking perfect double XL dream sort of cylinder. But it's that exact same wave when it's two foot. And that to me is what makes that area so special is that it's the same. The wave stays the same no matter how big it is. It's the most perfect wave from two feet to 25 feet on the planet. And as someone whose comfort zone is very firmly under 15 feet, uh, I was real, real nervous going into the trip. And honestly, I didn't know what to bring. I packed a 7.6 thinking that I was like just laughing with a board that big. And wish that I had at least another foot and a half, if not two or three feet on the front of my board. Uh, and we'll go back with exactly that equipment at some point to uh, attempt redemption. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, we wanted to go to Fiji because I think that there's a lot of uh, sort of misconceptions about Fiji. I think a lot of people still think that cloud break and restaurants are private and that they're off limits unless you stay at Tavarua Island. And if they don't, they don't realize the ins and outs of how that sort of went down as far as the two decades of exclusivity and the legal fight around opening up the reefs there. And from the outside, I think it looks like a real like sort of negative conflict. And I was pretty excited to go and sit and talk to John Roseman. I think he's probably the most barreled human to ever live. He's one of the co-founders of Tavarua Island Resort, and he's lived on the island of Tavarua since, I believe, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, And then getting to spend time and get to know a guy who's lived sort of a Peter Pan existence uh, from the outside to most surfers, I think he's got to be, as far as like, guys who've done it better than anybody else who've made surfing at a high level and getting barreled the center of their lives. I think you're hard pressed to find people that can match him pound for pound, barrel for barrel besides maybe Mike Ho. And that's an impressive like thing to be able to claim, you know, and it's, uh, he's lived an honorable existence uh, as a surfer. It's, it's amazing. I mean, for a guy who grew up in Laguna Beach, too, you know, and he, like you said, is probably one of the most, he's probably spent more time in the barrel than anyone in human history, potentially. Yeah, he has to. Uh, <laughs> That's funny to think about. And and one of the things we, we kind of touched on once uh, before the recording this was like, I asked, does that diminish the tube for him? Does that like yep. take away from, you know, by having perfect waves all the time, you know, uh, you know, does that like make it any less exciting or fun? Yeah. You always, you always fear that, you know, if too, that too much of a good thing would have it lose its luster, but seeing Roseman get blown out of like 10 foot pits for four or five hours with the biggest smile on his face, like, 
almost shaking like a little kid after waves, it makes you realize that you can never get barreled enough. So, so there was always this uh, question I would always pose people. Like I would ask, um, would you rather be one of the best surfers in the world and be able to surf any waves and have diversity of waves? Or would you rather just be an average surfer who had perfect waves every day? And I think we now know the answer to that question <laughs> is have perfect waves every day. <laughs> Especially that wave. Because there's very few waves on the planet that do exactly the same thing, no matter if it's two foot or 20 foot. And to be able to have that variety, to have a perfect wave at, you know, how sliced up any way you want it throughout the year. Um, yeah, I can't imagine a better way to spend your life. And it's one of those things that, that, uh, you know, he's sitting and hearing what, it, what that felt like for him to make that decision to go, I'm going to be uncompromising about this. This is going to be my life. That to me is like a fucking flex on the universe, uh, <laughs> of being like, I grew up so far from this world, but I'm going to put myself at the center of this one because it has everything that I could ever want. And as much as I think it's easy to just say like, oh yeah, he just stayed and got barreled his whole life. He'll tell you just as quickly that it was just as big of a draw to be there because of just how friendly and warm and kind and generous and cool the Fijian people are. I can't think of friendlier people that I've ever encountered. Why wouldn't you want to spend the rest of your life getting barreled around people like that? Like that's heaven. Uh, and so good on him for it. And, uh, he's the, he's the blueprint for a, a surfing life. Well lived. I think it's kind of amazing that he has not gotten sick and tired of that wave, which is kind of incredible. Um, but let's, let's go right to the interview where you and John discuss Fiji Tavarua and his history there. When was Cloudbreak first surfed? Like, as, as far as you know, when was the first time that the, or I guess I should say, that, like, this zone, restaurants, what was the first wave that people found here? Um, well, I think uh, William Finnegan, right? I mean, way back when, even probably before, God, I'm not sure the exact history, Steve Ritter, I know, was sailing a boat through here and surfed restaurants, and I believe that was, like, in the late 1970s. Um, and mentioned this insane left appeals around an island to my partner, Dave Clark. Mm-hmm. And then Dave Clark came down here, you know, the very early 80s, 81, 82. Camped on the beach right here, um, surfed restaurants, and then went out to Clawbreak. I think like, the first six months he was here, like, no one really, I mean, everyone thought Clawbreak, you know, maybe surfable, but it was, like, too intimidating. And this wave was so perfect. So it took, kind of took a, a long time for people to kind of, go out to cloud break and so Dave would bring a zodiac with a you know a couple friends and like where do you anchor obviously there was no tower back then no lineup marker or anything and so anyway Dave Clark was the first one to officially serve cloud break um, and name it cloud break mm-hmm. uh, which is basically a Fijian word for just Milangi, which means thunder cloud reef um, but yeah that's kind of the I guess a little bit of the historical background. Like, is there, I mean, Pipeline is obviously the most, like, iconic surf spot in the world as far as names go. Yeah. But Cloudbreak has to be number two. Like, as far as, like, a a name that fits the wave and that, like, 
you imagine it, you know, like you're like cloud break, you know, it's like fucking terrifying. Oh, no, no. It's still beautiful, you know, it's like, what's a cloud? What is a breaking cloud? Exactly. (laughs) Well, actually, it was crazy. So terrifying to us as surfers, right? For all sorts of reasons that that are pretty obvious. Um, But to the Vigians, you know, 100 years ago, it was really terrifying. Yeah. When they would see, like, mists on the horizon, they knew, like, okay, we're not going to go out fishing today. Because they knew the waves were, like, way too big. And, I mean, that's just the name Thundercloud, you know, just kind of says, you know, there's the roar of the wave to, you know, the, the Fijians' um, generations. That they were intimidated by it, just like we are. Yeah. So, how old were you when you first showed up? Whew. Um, that was only a couple of years ago, right? I was like, <laughs> no, I feel, no, it was... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I don't know. Time, I was probably. That's the time to move in Tavaruatai. I know. I was probably um, <clears throat> 20, 21, somewhere in there. What um, was your first? Like, give me the, give me like, first impression showing up on this island and seeing the reality of it. What was it like? Yeah, uh, Dave Clark um, was running at the time with his partner Scott Funk. It was a very primitive surf camp. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple, you know, pretty rustic berets, shower bags, you know, for your shower in the back. One kind of central, quote-unquote, bathroom. Um, and it was, freaking, it was heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it was like, it was exactly how you would picture just a rustic on quintessential South Pacific Island. Well, I think about nowadays what it's like. You have cell service and you have access to, like, all mm-hmm. of this, like, you can get to the rest of the world if you need to. But in, I mean, what year was that? The early 80s, mid 80s? Yeah, like, yeah, 88. You're like, mate, you're lucky if you've got a sat phone. Like the place is as removed as you can imagine on the planet. Yeah. And that must have felt amazing to be that isolated. Like you can't be that isolated now, you know? There's no way no. of doing it. Uh, you can't make yourself an island. No, it's, <laughs> no, no, to your point, I mean, not only did we not have internet, but like we didn't even have a fax machine. We didn't have like a regular phone. It was like one of the ship to shore phone um, systems. To the mainland, we used to have operated, operator-assisted calls um, to the United States. It was so funny, you'd have to make an international call to an operator, and then she'd call you back like five minutes later when she'd connect to you. You know, and even <laughs> most of the time that didn't even work. <clears throat> um, and so how did, so I've, I've gotten a little bit of an explanation of how the, like you guys were able to actually like purchase the lease or to get the lease for the, the reef itself, because it's like, Similar to the way the villages each have rights to like different spots to fish, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that the way it worked? Yeah. Um, what you have in Fiji is going goli, uh, kind of how would you call it? Uh, fishing right ownership. Um, but basically, it's it's fishing rights for certain villages. Yeah. You know that are all kind of divided up throughout the the country, um, just so they all respect you know each other's fishing grounds. Yeah. And at that point, there was no surf culture in Fiji. There was no surfers in Fiji in the 1980s, really. No. Um, there, there was a pocket of, of surfers up in Suva and also a couple of guys that would go out to frigates. Yeah. It was re- but, it was, you know, really it was sleepy in those days. Super, yeah. super sleepy. Uh, so you were saying that the, the secret is just making 17-year-old decisions. Like, when, <laughs> Wait. When, so when, when was that first decision to be like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Like, was, that, was that like a Down. conscious thing? Like when you came here? Like how did it... How did the decision to like make this your life's project happen? Um, I mean, you know, I always wanted to do something with surfing in my life. And I think, 
you know, discovering this island for myself and the Fijian people. I mean, obviously the wave's incredible and that's super addicting, getting barreled at Cloud Break all by itself, but the Fijian people are just incredible and really you can't have one without the other. And I fell so in love with the Fijian people and I was like, you know what, I just I want to make this my life. And it just evolved. Why are they so friendly? Like, I, like, I feel mm -hmm. like it, it's like most people in America would find it almost disingenuous they're so friendly. But it is completely genuine. It's like open yeah. culture. Where does that come from? I think it comes from, well, I think it, just, it, it comes from their communal living, right, in the village. You, you kind of say, you know, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. I mean, if you see a Fijian with a really cool looking Bula shirt, for example, say, oh my God, that's the coolest shirt. They'll immediately like try taking it off and giving it to you. So you have to be really careful of that. They're just really genuine yeah. and sharing people. Yeah. They'll share everything with you. They'll, they'll share, they'll share your, their last meal with you. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, to a fault almost. And I, I just, it's communal living. They all have aunties, uncles, several dads, you know, their uncles and everything. It's just this extended family and there's just a lot of love and, and just a lot of caring for each other. And all the surfers that come here talk about how they feel like family, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know it's, you know, they're like, I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. Uh, and that seems so unique to a place like this, you know? I mean, there are, there's places where people are like, all oh, the people are friendly. But there, I've never felt anything where it's like they want you to know that you are, like, welcome like it's your home, you know? Which is... Yep. You know, for they live on an island. You know, it's it's like it'd be so easy to be like, ex, you know, exclusionary or not wanting other people to come around. There's so many other places that have that feeling where it's like, oh, you're an outsider. Uh, and I just, it's so interesting to me how welcoming and warm and friendly everybody is. And, um, and I think part of that is that they're just really, you know, d despite you know some obvious hardships, um, living in the village and you know the economics and health issues and everything else, they're just genuinely, inherently happy. They're just really happy people. Their, their laugh is, is incredible, you know, just, I mean, just to generalize a little bit. And I think, you know, when people are that happy and they're happy with not material things, but each other and just like the simple things in life. They do seem to think that yeah. everything is funny. Oh yeah, no, totally. constantly laughing. It's amazing, I mean, we have so much to learn from that, right? Yeah. I mean, and so, was, so before that you guys built this, there was no one living on this island originally, no, correct? Not at all. Uh, some of the people from the local villages, Nambila Mummy, would come out here and fish, and they set up like a couple huts to kind of dry fish, drying racks and things. Yep. Or they'd come out to collect coconuts. But um, yeah, there was no one here. Yeah. And in fact, just from a tourism standpoint, <clears throat> the government did a survey of, of all these islands back in the... God, I don't want to say it was, it was in the 70s, um, and this island was deemed unsuitable for standard normal tourist use just because, you know, the access to get into the lagoon is, you know, basically a little bit treacherous for, you know, kind of your yeah. normal tourists, getting off the boat on the sand. You can't really build a jetty or a pier or anything like that, um, especially back then. Yeah, and that would have been the period where, like, commercial <coughs> flights to places like this became mm -hmm. more accessible to people wanting to go to, you know, the South Pacific or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so, what's the timeline between here and Nomotu as far as the development goes? Yeah, so Nomotu was a, uh, traditionally a day trip island. Mm -hmm. um, sustained a lot of damage in Cyclone Oscar, which was in 1983. Literally, it went from like having a bunch of coconuts, which <laughs> luckily it doesn't get 
It does now again to one coconut standing. Just flattened it. Flattened it. It was horrible. Wow. Cyclone Oscar, in fact, was horrible just for the whole western side of Fiji. Yeah. But Nemotu definitely took the brunt of it just, you know, obviously because of its size and location on the reef. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, um, we started developing Nemotu into kind of more of a resort concept in 1995 mm -hmm. with the idea that, okay, you know, if we do like, you know, a smaller version of Tavarua, th this could be amazing. And have it, you know, Nemotu definitely has its own personality, incredible kite windsurfing conditions, um, incredible foil conditions, which back then, you know, yeah. didn't, didn't exist, but um, really beautiful. And so we worked um, with some of the local villages that, that own Nemotu, some of the families and the government to establish a small version of this with some other partners, and that was a fun project. For people that, um, that don't understand Fijian culture, I think mm -hmm. that it's very interesting how when you're dealing with these sort of development projects, you're working with the village and the chief of the village and all of the families to work out those negotiations and what works best for everyone. Uh, was that fair? I mean, being in your mid-20s, I mean, it seems like it would be a very interesting world to be thrown into as far as like tribal dynamics, international, like whatever, property law, and then surf yeah. tourism. I mean, yeah, my partner, Rick Isbell, um, who was also down in the early days with me, kind of helping out. I mean, we were both basically kids when we took over ownership. Yeah. And then we inherited, you know, our Fijian staff on this island and everything. And it was intimidating because I think to the Fijian staff, we were still kind of kids. Yeah. How old were you? And I mean, again, I was probably, you know, well, when we took over kind of more ownership, that would be 1993. Mm -hmm. um, so early 20s still, mid-20s. And yeah, it was crazy about that. Um, you know, we basically inherited this Fijian family and then we just went through crazy things together. Yeah. You know, with just cyclones and just crazy, just different events. Um, you know, we hadn't really developed the resort yet. Yeah. And so literally we'd bring out all our supplies and just long boats instead of barges and all sorts of crazy weather conditions. and carrying benzene containers, you know, across the, <clears throat> across the mangrove flats at low tide and just doing everything ourselves with, with our staff. I mean, we worked literally together yeah. and just like, we did this all together. I mean, I could, we could never have done anything without our Fijian staff. Yeah. And then, um, and how big is the staff here now? Gosh, now we have probably have a hundred people wow. total, not that work every day, but yeah. probably on the payroll. And how many live on the island full time with you guys? I probably, you know, 20 to 30, yeah. depending. We do have our Fijian staff quarters on the other side of the island, and depending on their groups and the necessity of them staying overnight, yeah. that swells. And, and then as far as the talks. breakdown of, like, uh, the, what are they called, berets? Uh-huh. How many berets, like, how many people, you want to give us a breakdown of, like, the resort itself from, like, a number standpoint? How many people can stay? Sure. The, it's a minimum of one week when you come, for the most part? Yeah, we try to do it that way. It's just yeah. easier. Um, and better for the guest experience, you know, it really takes seven nights down here to, yeah. no matter what the waves are like, to, to really, you know, settle into the Fijian experience and, and get a lot out of it. Yeah. Um, so we have 14, call it double accommodation, mm -hmm. sometimes they can triple up. And then we have kind of two, I call it deluxe, which is basically two bedroom berets. And then we built, what we call our Tabura Villa on the point, and it has like two wings, and that can basically uh, accommodate two families. So I guess in entirety, you know, 48, yeah. depending, you know, people have kids and things. 
And how many are return customers at this point? I mean, Aquid, you know, I mean, really our Tavra family is, is big and really extends to all our guests that have been here. And I would say probably 90%. Yeah. You know, there's some years where people might have to take a year off or whatever from their normal group or whatever. And that's not when we have COVID, but yeah, I mean, we have some people literally that have been here like 25 years straight, Every even 30 year. years straight, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, I mean, I can understand why once you experience it, yeah. you're just like, all right, well, that's it. Like, I've, yeah. what else would come close to it? So just book it in. Yeah. <laughs> no, our whole philosophy, you know, with, with this resort um, and just development in Fiji in general is just sustainability. And I mean that in a sense, of course, environmentally, right? We try to do what we can environmentally. We have you know, our giant clam project that we work with the Ministry of Fisheries on to basically propagate giant clam, which is a major food source for the Fijian people and everything. Um, but also, you know, sustainability in the sense of all the stakeholders. And so, yeah. you know, of course, government, and, and we want to do the right thing by the Fiji government, the local villages, the Fijian people, our guests, and, and just, I mean, our whole thing is just keep this going, keep this incredible experience going every single year for foreseeable future and beyond. It's an amazing legacy. Like, yeah, it's, it is the blueprint um, for the like ultimate surf camp. I mean, it is the, to me, it's like, it is the archetype, you know what I mean? For like the paradise, <coughs> the island of Santosha, it's here. You know what yeah. I mean? Like what people have been looking for. We, we try, you know, of course we still have a lot to learn, you know, and right now we're kind of undergoing um, some transition into renewable energy with mm -hmm. solar and some other concepts. So Seems like solar about. wind would be like oh yeah totally pretty, pretty useful here wind and sun you yeah. definitely have an abundance of that abundance of that here you want to real quick go through when it mm -hmm. was it was private for how long and then it was made public in 2000 what year oh boy when's that 2000 i think right no 2010 excuse me july 2010, 2010 yeah was what were your concerns as that was sort of coming forward when you knew it was going to happen where it was like it's becoming open and what has been the reality yeah i mean i, mean, I think one of the major concerns. We didn't really understand like how many people these reefs could hold. Mm -hmm. um, we have a pretty uh, well-stocked medical clinic and volunteer doctors and things. And you know, even back in the old days, we, we had really serious surf injuries that we you know, obviously did our best to take care of and a lot were life-threatening and things. So we didn't know if, if that was going to become a major issue with just more people getting injured with surfboards and everything. And, being yeah. all the way out here. And it's not like you can say no if they're not guests, you know? Like someone's showing up with something fucked up, like, yeah. you're going to help them. And we do, for yeah, sure. Totally. And it is the right thing to do. <laughs> no, no, totally. It's the right thing to do. You know, you have to do that. So, no, I think everything's totally, you know, worked out. And, yeah. I mean, take this week, it was epic, right? And, I mean, obviously, you know, not everyone could stay on this island, even though I wish they yeah. could, but, you know, capacity-wise. And we had, like, great crew, you know, from staying in different places and, you know, obviously it was all time. Yeah. And it seems like the, it ha what the fear would probably be that it would be like all this outside investment once it opens up coming in and flooding the area. But it feels mm -hmm. like the only real change out there is that a few of the locals have their own boats and their own little sort of like things mm -hmm. going on, <coughs> which seems great. Like it seems like there's enough to go around for sure for this to still maintain its feeling. And it's like not exclusivity, but it's like, you know, it's, uh, it's an elevated experience yeah. beyond anywhere else, you know. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think that that, ta that not being private takes away from anything here. 
No, no. You know, I, I mean, I think back then, I mean, we just didn't know what was going to happen. Of course, we were a little concerned with just environmental impact too, and anchors yeah. and you know, fuel spills and who knows what else. But yeah. Becomes a wild west pretty quick in a lot of places. Yeah, but it definitely sorted itself out, and you know, we worked closely with the Fiji Surfing Association, and which you know I was involved in way back in like 1990. God, when was that? 93, 94, when we took a team of the South Pacific Games in Tahiti, and mm-hmm. kept in close touch since. And you know, I think um, no, I think it's all really worked out well. Yeah. You know, and I have to thank the surrounding community for that because there's a lot of people that care deeply about this whole system of reefs beyond just us on Tavara and I think you know we're all on the same team yeah so what's the future for Tavarua and, and Fiji as far as you see it what's the next 10 20 years besides you getting barreled <laughs> I mean just kind of keep doing what what we're doing and, and just keep doing better at it learn more and just you know we definitely want to bring up just the overall um quality of life in, in the surrounding communities yeah and we're definitely going to continue to do that and just you know basically just hopefully keep doing what we're doing better i know that the resort opened the same year that endless summer 2 released um in 1995 i believe yeah 94 95 yeah that was my first surf movie really as a kid i remember being you know 12 or 13 years old and seeing that for the first time and what a real like South Pacific paradise island looked like. Uh, and I just remember that scene of Kelly and Jeff Booth and Tom Carroll and those guys walking around the island in 45 minutes yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. And just thinking like, oh, I hope someday I get to go there. And when they greenlit this project, the first person that I called was Julian. Julian was off tour and he's, you know, one of my favorite surfers out there. I always think back about the heat between him and Taj and Kelly Slater and I think 2015, um, and just it being the, like the dreamiest surf contest conditions you could ever have, just like roping six to eight foot cloud break. And Julian and I have you know known each other for a long time. Julian used to be a longboarder, uh, <laughs> or at the very least, Julian is an exceptionally gifted longboarder as well as a shortboarder. There's no shame in that. Uh, and we had that shared uh, you know sort of uh, interest, but. Julian and I have spent a bit of time on tour together. Um, and for him, I think that it was a bit eye-opening going into this project. And not, I think it was a very different trip for Julian because normally he'd be flying in for either a CT event and staying at Tavarua, or he would be coming in for maybe a swell and just filming at Cloudbreak and restaurants and then flying out you know, the day after the swell. And for this trip, we were fully embedded with Tavita and Yuri and this whole crew of local Fijians who were so generous with their time and took us to all the different villages and showed us around where all the boatmen live and how as cloud break and restaurants is opened, these guys have been able to develop their own form of like village surf tourism so that surfers who are coming, they don't have to stay at the Marriott or at some like luxury hotel nearby they can stay right in the villages at these homestays and be taken care of by truly the friendliest and kindest people I've ever been around who are also the most comfortable people you'd like to be around in the heaviest situations that you can put yourself. Yeah, it was really cool to hear Julian talk about 
how on this trip he didn't have to stay in Tevru or Namodu and just stayed actually in the more local village. And his experience about that was really interesting. And, and you guys have a great conversation about that and, and your sessions here. So um, here's you and, and, uh, and Julian discussing your trip to Fiji. Jules, you've, got, you've been coming here for a long time. I feel like Australia, being as close as it is, it has a pretty special connection to Fiji. Uh, how old were you when you first surfed Cloudbreak? First time I surfed Cloudbreak was my first year on tour, uh, 2011. We came here. Um, and yeah, I was blown away just how close it was. Just, yeah, I was never exposed to the opportunity to come and surf Cloudbreak. Um, just yet it had never had never come up and it's only a three hour flight away so i was pretty baffled when i got here and just how beautiful it is and and the the wave itself just how like mesmerizingly like i don't know it's just if there was only one wave here like you would fly from the other side of the world to come and surf it it's um it's really special, but yeah, that was my first year coming here to surf cloud break and um, I've kind of, yeah, fallen in love with uh, Fiji and the people and the waves ever since and it's, um, yeah, it's right on our doorstep. Like as far as that forecast goes beforehand, like we talked and you were thinking six twos and then very quickly Tavita sent us a text message that said, oh, I'm waxing up the nine O's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we touched base like two weeks out on the swell and it looked really good. But it looked like the in-between size where it's so much work, but super rewarding. But it is a lot of work to get one on the first ledge out of Cloudy. And um, it kind of went on ice for about almost a week. Mm. I, that was sort of my opinion. And then I was like, f make sure like, um, you know, Veets is, is really seeing the same thing. and. Yeah, we left it for a week and then the forecast sort of upgraded and I kind of got itchy feet. I was like, what are we doing? Like, I'll just come no matter what, I'm ready, <laughs> let's do it. And then, um, yeah, when I would normally come here, I, yeah, don't have a, don't really bring anything bigger than a 6.2. Just, I've, all, I've had some, a lot of fun and enjoyment out of surfing the first ledge at Cloudbreak, which is a, a world-class wave in its own. Um, and then, yeah, this trip was a whole nother beast. When, yeah, Veets was like, oh, there's some, yeah, rather large tides and there's an opportunity we might get a window. And I was like, all right, I've got an 8.0 I've had for four years since, like, it was only for this wave and for that opportunity to surf the, the back part of the reef, um, which I'd never, never seen, but was dreaming about coming back to surf. So um, yeah, the forecast sort of upgraded. Veets was, probably couldn't have been more accurate from like a week out on exactly how the week was gonna play out, which was a pretty cool experience. It's probably my greatest experience I've had in Fiji. This week has been, yeah, super memorable. I've had a great result here before making the final and some beautiful waves, but like, there was bugger all people in the surf for a week straight. The vibes were really good. Getting to understand Veets' relationship with Fiji and 
his like connection to this place and sharing some of his knowledge and showing me the respect that he has for the place and, and how meaningful it is to him and like sharing the lineup in some like very intimidating ways was um, kind of a cocktail for an extremely memorable trip. Maybe one of the greatest swells and just surf frothing enjoyable trips I've I've probably had it's been yeah like I think I, I saw the best waves I've ever seen in my life this trip and um yeah I just re yeah I got a couple yeah I caught a couple as well and just yeah really enjoyed staying um across the road from Veets and Yuri here and like just doing it this way it's 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 uh it's great to see it from this angle because coming for the events, you stay on the Motu or Tavi and you, you lock in, you fly in, you straight out to the island and then losing the contest or make it to the end, you're straight out of here um, from the island to the airport. So I've had a little bit of experience staying on the mainland, but like this experience is like, I'm going to have one eye on Fiji swells for like the rest <laughs> of my life, I think. <laughs> I won't hit your DMs, I'll just show up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be like, I hope you, you relax on this one. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> uh, so tell us about how you ended up with that board, the 8.6. Yeah, so when Tavita was like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm um, dusting off my 9.0. Looks like we might get a good, we, there's a good chance we'll get a window. Um, all of a sudden this 8.0 that I've like never in four years haven't come close to riding and like obviously going to Hawaii for the last four years in a row and for six weeks at a time it's mega waves but like nothing I rode was over a 7.0 and um, an eight foot board just like I know that I, I knew that I needed that type of a board to come and have a go um, if the stars aligned. But when Veets said he had a 9.0 that he was dusting off, I was like, all of a sudden the 8.0 that I'd never ridden was small. And I was just like wigging out at home, just like, this board that I've never come close to riding is now feeling small. So yeah, I just went on a, on a hunt, um, chased down a, a surf shop an hour away and drove down and paid cost price for a nice JS 8.6. Just, yeah, stock shape and it was actually pretty cool because I don't have any experience in that, um, in that sort of big wave world and like I was like, it was a full like shop experience. I was like, okay, like, you know, I need this 8.6 and what fins do I need? And like, it was like, just everything, it was like a whole new learning experience for me and I like walked out of the shop and I took my little boy with me and he was having a hell of a time running around the shop. It's just funny to think about you being a pro surfer, like having a brand new experience, like a, like a foreign experience buying a surfboard. <laughs> yeah, and it was um, it was cool. I was extremely nervous, like right from when I even just saw the board in the shop. I was like, oh, I really come here to buy, buy that board. Like, what am I going to do with it? Like, <laughs> am I kidding myself? And yeah, but it worked out good. They put me on the right fins and the right leg rope and came over and ended up being the best $1,200 I've spent in my life, I think. 
I broke, I broke my custom 8.0 that I'd had in the garage for four years on the second wave. And then uh, it was time to ride the 8.6. And I thought it would be, I'd be overgunned and out of my league and not be able to turn it and I'd just get myself into trouble. But ended up going so good. Just loved it. It was such a cool experience. And I think just surfing with Tavita and with Shay and we had like a window of like an hour and a half there where it was like swimming pool like conditions and if I was ever going to build some confidence to have a go at a wave like that it was like sort of had to it had to happen and um yeah ended up having a, a, a session to remember and a highlight session of my life so it was uh yeah it was special. How did it feel to have the fucking three-time Jaws champ tell you that you showed up all the double XL guys? You too, and <laughs> Jay, like fully stole the show off all the double XL blow-ins. Uh, well, we only had a very small group that were around to surf, and yeah. the conditions were off, but the local just <laughs> held tight. Like, we showed up in the morning, it was a little bit windy. We just missed like a 20-foot top-to-bottom set, and... Um, there was nothing else like it for like 40 minutes and we're kind of believing what everyone said obviously because of the forecast but like there was nothing anything like that that was breaking and we're kind of like uh. and Veets was on the ski at the time and just came over to the boat and was like oh I'm just gonna wax up and go for a look where like me being a just the you know traveling tourist to come and have a look like <laughs> I would be saying, oh yeah, the forecast was a bit off. I'll go and have a look at restaurants and like, which is what the boys ended up doing. And um, yeah, we ended up surfing for like five hours. Veets went back and forth, had a few toe waves and just playing around because it wasn't quite doing it. But um, I was just led by, led by him and we just fell into this window and Shay's a other local charger. And it was, um, yeah, it was like, it was meant to it was meant to be somehow yeah uh, where would you put that session like up there with all-time sessions at Cloudbreak for you I think it was the best day of waves I think I've ever had yeah yeah Feels I good think to so hear you say that, I can't <laughs> imagine a better day than waves no yeah it's the best restaurants I've ever surfed I haven't surfed it a lot but to get that size those conditions the lineup everyone was just like in such a good vibe and like we jumped off the boat it was a little bit wonky there was a little bit of like wind on it which is what we sort of left at cloudy and kind of expected a little bit but then the tide um was just right um and the wind just completely died and we had like an hour again we had two like those two little windows where we were just kind of we were just laughing at each other really like especially at restaurants like i was just watching him get double barreled like a couple of turns in between like going past grinning ear to ear like we we're kind of, like after the experience that we just had it was just like there was no way of like sort of topping that experience but like to go in super relaxed into like unbelievable waves again at that playful size was just like are you kidding me like are we even like alive right now like what's going on like yeah it was it was fun to see what village life looks like in you know 2022 and it, especially after 
you know, spending the last two years locked down in a place like Los Angeles and spending a lot of time in the U.S. in cities to see what real, like, rural village communal life looks like and feels like and what it's like to be a little kid running around a village barefoot in the most supportive, warm, like, little culture that I've ever encountered. It was such a surreal experience for Julian and I. Um and one that I don't think a lot of surfers who've just come and had that sort of luxury resort boat to the out to cloud break experience would have gotten to feel. And for me, it was, yeah, it was really special. It's, it's nice to be able to pull back the curtain and see beyond cloud break and restaurants in that sense. Uh, you know, it's, it's something like, you know, when you think of Fiji, it's, that's all you think about. And for a lot of our, our listeners should be aware, there's actually so much more to Fiji too, you know? Yeah, there's tons of other waves. Admittedly, the season that we were there, it was pretty hard for us to go anywhere about Cloudbreaker restaurants because yeah. it was <laughs> massive. But there's every variety of setup that you could ever imagine for any level of surfer visiting. There's beach breaks, there's really friendly sort of reef passes that look like Malibu. Um, and then there's the scariest waves on the planet if you're, if you want it. And you can do that trip any number of ways. For me, having seen all the options, I'm hard pressed to think of a more enjoyable experience than being hosted by the villages and spending time with them and having them sort of give their side of Fiji, um, it felt like going back in time. And to me, that's like a dream scenario on a surf trip that you don't get to have anymore where you feel like you're able to go back and experience what surfing might have been like before the explosion of the internet, before most sort of destination international surf zones were developed and sort of not exploited, but at the very least like uh, industrialized almost. Mm -hmm. It still feels like you're going on an adventure going to Fiji uh, nowadays. And just in the last like 10, 15 years, there's been a real burst of actual local Fijians taking up surfing and surfing all the other waves nearby. But one of the big challenges is getting kids out to the outer reefs and those waves. They require a boat and someone to, you know, that's comfortable on the reefs driving. And so slowly that infrastructure has been developed largely through the opening of cloud break in 2010 through the legal dispute and the surfing decree that the Fijian government put into place. And then the ability for the local villages to create their own services that they can bring the kids out with. And nowadays you see a really sort of synergistic, cool environment that, that now if you, when you visit Fiji today, the ecosystem in the lineup is super harmonious. Most of the businesses if not all that are running charters out to cloud break and restaurants are run by locals who at one point worked on the islands mm -hmm. and they've been able to create a system where they can pick up people at the airport, put them up, take them out and surf and work with the guys on Tavarua and on Nemotu and all the other islands to create a really sustainable, like enjoyable like really low, uh, bad vibe environment. It's one of the <laughs> coolest crowds that I've ever surfed in. And one of the coolest like shared experiences that I've had with a really diverse group of surfers 
all having the best day of their lives. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Uh, you had a conversation with Tavita Gukilau uh, about, you know, the kids and, and that experience of, of one, like back when it was more regulated and not being able to go surf uh, cloud break, but now how it's opened up and it's opened up a lot of opportunities and, and getting the groms and kids out to surf. Uh, so I thought it was a really interesting conversation you had with him, and and we'll just let's just dive right into that conversation you had with Tavita Gukilau. Uh, describe what growing up here, like learning how to surf, was like for you. Well, for me personally, because I I grew up in Western Australia, so like I was here as a kid. Um, but never surfed here as a kid, so I only really came back here to surf here as an adult. So as far as like, you know, in that sense it was good uh, growing up in Western Australia and like having access to the beach, um, even though the waves are really bad in Perth, but at least there's waves that you can paddle off the beach. That's one of the biggest barriers to entry here is um, is all the waves for the most part are outer reefs. I mean, there's one beach break, but you know, just getting kids from their houses out to the reefs is a bit of a logistical nightmare, so to speak. So, you know, without, without older crew and without other people facilitating that, it becomes quite a difficult thing to do here. And, and the biggest sport here is rugby by far. So, you know, that's like religion. So every kid here wants to be a professional rugby player. So. Um, surfing's like a fair way down the list on um, as far as things that kids are uh, brought up with, but you know, that's slowly beginning to change, you know, and a lot more kids out in the water now than they used to be. Um, so can you explain like your childhood, where like your sort of family lineage? And yeah, so um, well my dad's from a village called Wailevu in Kandavu, which is like the southernmost island here. Um, so all my family on my dad's side is from that area. It's like a really beautiful island uh, to the south south of the mainland of Fiji. Um, a lot greener than sort of this western side and really fertile soil, like really, really good place to grow um, carver and, and other assorted crops and stuff. So it's, I mean, it's super volcanic, super rich soil. So a lot of guys down there farming. Um, but yeah, that's sort of where my um, heritage on the Fiji side runs deep from and um, wild level actually means big water so I guess it's kind of always in my veins. <laughs> you look like the frog. Uh, and so how did your parents meet? Um, dad was, he moved to New Zealand first, like dad was a really good athlete um, so that sort of took him out of like his small village like wild level even now you know still doesn't have electricity like mains electricity so you know, talking like 50, 60 years ago, uh, dad first made his way out of a small village and went to New Zealand and was competing in sport over there. And then uh, from there, that sort of took him to Australia. And then from there, he decided he was gonna go try out for the SAS, Special Air Service, and in somehow got in. <laughs> and um, that's sort of where I came into the picture when he was uh, in the military. And hence the reason, um, I grew up in Western Australia because that's where the, the SAS army base is. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite, it's, his story in itself was quite crazy. Like if you, if you were to go to the village and see 
how sort of remote and far away that is and then see some of the things and places he's been, it's quite remarkable for a small kid from Fiji, like from the middle of nowhere, basically. So yeah, but that's, yeah, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have like been exposed to both worlds. You know, like I remember when I was over here as a kid, like I'd never wanted to leave, like I didn't want to leave. It was just, I just wanted to stay on the islands, but mum wouldn't let me, so. I, uh, but I'm thankful for that as well, you know, cause I've, I've got a lot of really good friends and, and um, you know, had really good experiences uh, going to school and stuff and surfing in Australia and and I think that sort of set the tone for the surfing side of things I mean everything's super developed over there comparatively so you know had I stayed here as a child who knows I probably wouldn't even surf <laughs> you know I don't I don't really don't know you know so um, you know I'm very thankful for that and then it's, it's been so great to come back and over the last sort of 10-15 years and really try and get to know Cloudbreak and all the surrounding waves and, you know, get back to my roots, I guess. Yeah. Uh, how old when you first surfed in Fiji? Uh, sometime in my 20s, actually, because obviously with the, with the exclusivity thing of, of the islands out there, I didn't really have a great interest in coming back to surf because, I mean, I, I couldn't really afford to stay out there, so I was... Um, yeah, so I sort of didn't want to come over and not be able to surf cloud break. Um, so it was really started getting into it when everything um, opened up and then came back around then and, and yeah, just like fell in love straight away and just pretty much in awe of that place um, and that wave. And yeah, just want to be close to it, near it, <laughs> around it. <laughs> um, can you explain how the lease on the fishing rights and the this whole Tavarua thing worked? So basically, um, yeah, it comes down to like reef rights. So each village has like a sort of designated zone that um, that's sort of their fishing grounds, and um, and yeah, the lines are cut like in different different areas in different ways, and so. Mommy and Tavarua were linked, and I think um, that was sort of their fishing area, and that's just sort of how how that whole lease thing came about. I guess you know prior to it becoming a surf camp, I think crew would probably just go out there and you know camp there for the night and go fishing the reefs, and and that's uh, that's sort of how the whole lease thing is, for, to my knowledge, as far as I know, uh, that's sort of how it all works. Yeah. Um. And which seems like truly unique, like, like, like people have this idea that Cloudbreak is in the middle of nowhere, that it's not somewhere that you could access unless you were at that island or if you had special access. Yeah. But you can see it from the land. Yeah. To think about growing up there as a kid, wanting to be a surfer and that place being off limits seems pretty crazy. What was that reality like for, I mean, from your understanding of like talking to... You know, yeah, I mean, I know, I know, you know, it affected different people differently I mean there's there's a lot of guys that are still sort of um, you know I, I guess it's all water under the bridge now but there's there's definitely like a lot of guys that probably hold on to some sort of resentment and a bit of like uh, I don't know like not animosity but like I think they feel like they kind of got ripped off for that time period in their life you know um, without but you know it's having it change and, and everything open up and you know everyone sort of gets along now and everyone um you know it's it's i think opening up 
obviously to begin with probably would have been difficult I know for for the crew that are, that were used to having it to themselves but I think in the long run it's it's beneficial to everyone you know because now you've got a lot of the boatmen and a lot of the guys that used to work at the islands they're able to run their own small businesses they're able to you know save up and buy their own boats and take guests out there and so I think like it's it's definitely had a net positive effect on not only Fiji, Fiji and well definitely like Fiji and surf culture and getting more people out in the water but just you know economically I think for the whole area I think everyone sort of prospered from that and um, you know cloud break itself is it's pretty self-regulating when it gets above six foot so you know it's not it's not like I don't know if there's, I think probably the biggest issue that everyone was concerned about at the start was like overcrowding and whatnot. And sure, it does get crowded and busy when it's kind of smaller because it's got that reputation and everyone coming here wants to surf it. So they all, um, you know, there's probably a lot of guys out there that maybe it might be a bit beyond their skill level, but as soon as the, as soon as the wash throughs start coming through and it gets a little bit bigger, it kind of definitely self-regulates and scares the shit out of everyone. <laughs> And then yeah, it's fine. You know, it's a pretty relaxed lineup, I think, for the most part. Yeah. And I notice now, like a lot of the travelling surfers are quite respectful, and and yeah, so it's. I think for a lot of years, people just thought there was there was no locals in Fiji, and no. Um, but you know, there's guys older than me that have grown up here, and and um, it's nice to see them getting respect and um, and acknowledgement. You know, like I think for a lot of the time, people just thought no one surfed in Fiji. And they thought that you know they could come here and the rules don't apply but you know it's like anywhere else in the world there's guys that have spent years and years of their life guys that have grown up here and um so you know as long as everyone's treating it like they would anywhere else in the world and then it's great everyone can come and enjoy it you know um so one of the things that i feel like has been super interesting to witness is the way that the sort of communal and village life and organization changes the dynamics between the population, how everyone seems really like cohabitive and they seem to work together. And everyone always talks about like the relentless friendliness of Fijian people. Um, can you explain the sort of like village culture and the hierarchies and the chiefs and all that stuff and how that works economically as far as these new developing businesses go? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you speak to him. Most people you speak to will tell you like Fijians are like some of the friendliest people in the world and I mean you, you just go into the village and you see how the kids roam around like I think I was saying today like they're like free range kids you know not, not a single screen in front of them they're all just running around chasing each other around and they're you know you can walk from house to house and you know you're going to be looked after and you know it's safe and everyone sort of so I guess that having grown like when you grow up like that I think that just translates into like later in life I mean Fiji is still like a very chiefly system you know and there's you know there are chiefly families and there's and there's that level of respect um, within the village and there's certain like dynamics within that and um, yeah I mean it's hard to find a Fijian that's not smiling at you right? <laughs> or laughing or just making fun of everything and you know yeah. that's sort of just how everyone, how everyone rolls here yeah. And so with these new developments and with money coming into these communities, can you explain the way that there's sort of like a top-down, like trickle-down effect? Yeah, well, I mean, the so 
you know, even with leasing land or stuff like that, people, the, the money will come in and, and it gets divided up within that family group, whoever owns the land. And it's one of the, one of the good things about Fiji and probably, you know, there's a very small percentage of land in Fiji, like total is actually freehold. The majority of it is sort of native lease. Um, so like 99 year lease sort of stuff. So whenever that law came in, you know, I think that protected a lot of the Fijians because if you've got some somewhere beautiful on the coast, like chances are when people from other places come, they're just going to buy everything up, you know, and I think having that protection there with the lease system um, has probably stopped that from happening to a certain extent, you know, and, and, it, and it does give give the, the local villagers like a chance to buy new cars, buy new tractors, new boats, and then, you know, create industry within that. And um, that just has a follow-on effect, you know, like then the family group's looked after and everyone's making a bit of money and it's like, yeah, and everything's, as you said, pretty communal, you know, so everything gets shared around and everyone's sort of looking after each other, which is pretty refreshing in, in a world where everywhere seems to be like, what can I get for me, you know, like it's a bit more community-based, I guess, and, and share the love sort of thing. So, if you're going to Fiji, what should you bring? Oh, <laughs> a helmet, an impact vest. It, I mean, it's... Betadine. Yeah. It's def I mean, Fiji's definitely Street like kids. a choose-your-own-adventure. Uh, I would say I would bring surfboards designed for your absolute highest performance surfing in the most critical waves that you're comfortable in, whatever those are. I would bring a really good like SPF hat and shirt and rash guard and whatever you want to deal with the sun because it's brutal and you're on the boat all day with the reflection coming off the water and it could get pretty ruthless polarized sunglasses um, if you're surfing cloud break over say six to eight foot uh, I would say that a helmet is not a bad idea if you're surfing restaurants and you're not comfortable surfing over really shallow reef i would definitely wear a helmet uh we saw maybe four or five injuries in a matter of 45 minutes at restaurants including me getting <laughs> ripped through the cheese grater and filleting my legs with uh yeah i still have i have black like tiger stripes on the back of my thighs from the reef at restaurants um yeah, and just be prepared for it to not be like a. It is a dream wave, but it is one of the most powerful deep water reef passes that holds swell that size. I mean, people always compare it to Chopu and and pipe when it's big, but it feels more like a big sunset to me, like a big perfect sunset, like an open ocean just freight train of a wave as it gets bigger. And yeah, if you have the right equipment, if you have a big board that you're really confident on. I think it's still, even though I had a shocker on the big days, riding and trying to get in on a 7.6, I think that it is the the most user-friendly big barrel on the planet if you have the right board. And now I know what that board is. Um, but yeah, bring a big board. You'll, you'll, you will not regret it. Reef booties? I didn't wear reef booties, and I paid for it dearly. Uh, <laughs> if, if it's big you're you're sort of clomping around on these big coral heads that are like these big brains there it's not super sharp at cloud break 
unless you get into certain little like patches, you can sort of make do without them. If you're fucking around at restaurants, you're, yeah, you need anything you can get. It depends, you know, if you, if you feel comfortable clomping around on reef, go for it. But reef booties will probably save your life. So let's talk then about some of the other characters that you got to interview for this episode. Uh, who are some of the people that, that you were not aware of before going there uh, that, that all of a sudden became really important to you and to this episode? We got to spend time with Shay Slaughter, who him and his dad have run a restaurant called Cardo's in Denahar, Denahau Harbor. Let me say it again. Uh, him and his dad run a restaurant called Cardo's in Denahau. <laughs> Denarau, is that how you say it? Uh, so we got to spend time with Shay Slaughter and his dad who've owned a place called Cardo's in Denaral Harbor. That's like the place that if you're celebrating the best day of your life surfing, it's been the like spot for the after party for years. And Shay, during the, the big day that we had at cloud break by far caught the best waves of the day. And for him, he was a kid that grew up, you know, looking at cloud break and not being able to surf it and dreaming about having a crack when it gets big and to see him finally get that like dream day that he'd had in his mind was pretty special to witness. And then just to see his whole program, you know, they, they have this beautiful farm about 10, 15 minutes from the docks to get out to cloud break and maybe 20 minutes from their restaurant where they grow a lot of the citrus and they raise a lot of the livestock and they just have this like very thoughtful approach to sort of farm to table dining. And it's an incredible vibe at their restaurant. It just feels like the coolest local, like old school cocktail bar uh, that you could ever sit and celebrate your, your wins and losses and lick your <laughs> wounds. <laughs> Let's now dive behind the scenes here. Um, what were some uh, adventures that you had while making this? Uh, we, we touched a little bit on like your refresh and whatnot, oh. but uh, I'm curious, like what, 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 what do you want like our listeners to kind of know that you had to go through to make this episode? Oh, a lot of nerves. Um, <laughs> this episode was, the, was definitely the scariest one as far as the forecast and the conditions and the just sort of scramble for it, I got to finally experience what that's like for a big wave guy. You know, I think that I've, I've chased, you know, fairly decent swells for projects before. And we got really good waves at a lot of the locations that we shot for this series, but hands down, it was the first time that we, I've ever seen like mindlessly perfect 20 foot bombs roll through a reef pass so it was like a real like pinnacle trip for us. And for me, the biggest adventure of it was seeing Julian just like fucking say, yeah, sure, I'll have a crack. And how much fun he had uh, when it got big. Um, it definitely was like a new, it added a new depth to his uh, repertoire in my mind. And I think he really enjoyed it. I, you know, he seemed very interested in trying to go get huge barrels uh, 
after that experience. He said it was that he saw the best waves of his life and caught the biggest, you know, got the biggest barrels that he'd ever gotten. So it's, you know, he's one of my favorite servers on the planet and has been for like 20 years. It's cool to see someone with that much experience behind them still have like a peak experience. Put our listeners in, in your shoes getting caught inside a cloud break. Oh. <laughs> so let's let's just like, you know, because it, it does look perfect, but yeah. let's like give some of the reality here. <laughs> yeah, I would put cloud break over maybe eight foot on the in the top five scariest lineups to be caught inside just because of how much water is moving down that reef. It, I think that it, for people that have seen like Chopu or pipe, a lot of times the, the wave is the focus of the energy at cloud break. It's the whole lineup shifting and a wave would come through that would carry, what felt like the whole fucking ocean, like four or 500 meters down the reef, you'd get dragged and you'd see someone get, held under and pulled like full tombstone like 75 or 100 yards underwater and come up looking as scared as i'd ever seen surfers you know at places like mavericks or jaws you you know the fear is a two-wave hold down it's not one wave dragging you for fucking 500 yards it's a very short intense beating and then you pop up and hope there's not another wave there at cloud break, you were just hoping that the wave would fucking let you up. And once you pop up, you're so far in, it's very difficult to get back out without a ski. And a lot of times you're getting lagooned and they're having to come around and grab you. And during that lagooning, you're standing on these big, like, brain reef. Like, let me say, when, you're, when you get caught inside, you suddenly find yourself trying to sort of skip between these big mushroom head brains of coral that are about three to four feet wide and that collapse underneath you as you fall on them at times. And so you're, you're falling into like little deep ravines as like 10 feet of white water is coming at you with like zero water in between you and the reef. And so you're just trying to like absorb the impact and try and be carried over the reef at a, certain elevation to keep from being like bounced like a bit of a ball into the lagoon uh (laughs) listeners cloud break is open ocean wave basically so it's it you're not near any land and that that i think is the difference from a lot of other spots it's totally out in the middle of the ocean and that's why you're getting dragged so far yeah it's there's no interference there's no like there's nothing to break up the energy as it hits that reef. It just keeps moving forward straight towards restaurants, honestly. And as you're getting dragged, you're on the convergence of this deep water channel and this really shallow reef. And so all the energy is just getting sucked and pulled down and along the reef instead of onto the reef, like at waves like chokes where you just get blown, you know, in and then you just go around here. You're getting pulled and dragged at the same time. Um, and yeah, when I came back, I, uh, I called Nate Fletcher. I was like, fuck, I wish you would have told me that cloud break was heavy. He's like, what are you talking about? I told you to pack a nine, six. That doesn't tell you that it's heavy enough. I was like, I fucking should have listened to you. Holy shit. Uh, but yeah, if I ever, when I go back, I will go back with an impact suit with inflation with a helmet and with the biggest board that I'm comfortable trying to sort of navigate around a lineup like that. 
because uh, it was a lot it was a lot bigger playing field and a lot broader lineup than I was expecting. I can't imagine what it's like trying to line up there too, yeah. you know, because you are there's no landmarkers to really uh, set yourself up, and there's no more uh, tower the yeah. the tower that the WSL used to build each year for the event or that they used to maintain for the event um, washed away a few years ago. So there's just like a little, uh, there's like a little platform that once it gets over like six feet, you can't see because it's just white water. Wow. Even the back of it is taller than that. So it's a very, it's very complicated trying to triangulate, especially when it starts to move to that outer ledge and yeah, you would get caught inside and fucking swept through. And I think everyone at the end of the first session when it was big, uh, was feeling pretty lucky that no one had gotten really seriously hurt. And we motored straight into a restaurant session, which is a much smaller wave, but a much, much more dangerous reef and a much shallower reef. And in a matter of like 40 minutes, it was just like full carnage. <laughs> uh, heads getting split open, broken shoulder, my adventure through the reef. Uh, and what was really amazing was seeing the guys from Tavarua just fully just boom, get into action. Like they, these are the guys that weren't even staying at the resort, but they were there to grab them, get them medical service. They always, for the most part, have emergency doctors on the Island that can handle, you know, most situations that people will get in. But um, yeah, it was, it was amazing seeing the emergency team just go, boom, we've got this and sort out a guy that was like, concussed bleeding from his head like not in a good way um and bleeding from the head the i the would ocean. never imagine happening in a good way oh, really but yeah not in a good way <laughs> um so let's talk um costs if i want to go to fiji uh what am i looking at in, in terms of expenses here uh the luxury options are luxurious top dollar uh, but not as expensive as you might think. You can get rooms at, say, the Marriott for, you know, three or 400 bucks. Uh, Tavarua, you rent, for the most part, you do a blocked-out week, and I don't know what those run, depending, you know, it, I think it it changes season to season a little bit. Um, and for the most part, those, I mean, Tavarua's been booked by the same people that have been coming back for 25 years and they, they have their windows blocked and they do it each year. Um, but if you're just going and wanting to do the full like local host route, I think you can do it for cheaper than people probably imagine. And you're putting money back into the community and into each of the villages. So that's the way I would go. I would go reach out to Tavita and Yuri and some of the locals and let them know you're coming have them connect you with Abo and the crew in Nabila Village. See if they have any openings at some of the homestays and just let them take care of you because you won't find better hands to land in than those guys. And it's a it's a real experience staying in a village in Fiji. It feels exactly like it sounds, like a village in a South Pacific paradise full of people that have a real vested interest in keeping it that way. There you go. Um what sort of resources, where can people find information on going to Fiji and Tavarua? What, uh, what sort of call-outs do we need to give here? Um, swing through Cardo's in Denaral Harbor and talk to Shay. Uh, reach out to Tavita Nukilau. 
Tavita and uh, his really close friend Yuri work with Nabila Village, uh, sort of organizing homestays, and they're actually developing a little uh, surf camp with them um, on a piece of land that they've leased from Nabila so that they can sort of start to develop their own whole sort of surf camping experience with Abo and the whole crew. Uh, so I'm really excited to go back and to see those guys build their own reality for themselves. But yeah, talk to those guys. They'll, they'll dial you in. And uh, one last, like any takeaways for listeners going to Fiji, uh, any other advice that they should know? Uh, bring bandages <laughs> and antibiotic cream that has been shown to be effective on staph infections. <laughs> well, there you go. Bring bandages, people. And uh, and everyone, you can find this episode at uh, on Red Bull TV. Uh, definitely check it out. It's amazing. The waves are pumping, and it is sick. And, yeah, like you said, Julian Wilson is charging, and it's really cool. It's a great episode. Uh, so, listeners... Go check it out. It is now streaming, and we will uh, catch you next time at a, to discuss another location that we go to for No Contest Off Tour. Our next undisclosed location. Shh, it's a secret. Thanks, Tyler. <laughs> no problem, Ashton. We'll see you all soon. Take care. Ashton's got his board out, brand new board out of the board bag. He's like fumbling around for fins, leg rope, like trying to wax it up, like out.